Here we go then, bang into the first and only part of the also rands for this month. These are the movies that are too good for the worst pile, but also they're not good enough to get into my rather sensibly and well-adjusted mind to make the top 10. But there are 10 of them, ranging from number 20 in my chart to number 11, and I would say that there are three in here that some may even put into their top 10 films of all time lists. I just didn't vibe with them myself. You may get a little bit cross with this one. It just shows you that 1963 was a year of quality, but not particularly quantity. Uh, first of all, though, we've got to begin with Horror Castle. So, how about a castle with a tortured dungeon and a stack of beautiful women getting knocked off all over the shop, loads of rats and a guy in a hood and a cloak that feels very much like the most Scooby-Doo villain to ever feature in an Italian shocker. It took three weeks to make, made a ton of cash. Yes, please, this was a total comfort watch for me, even though, objectively, it's average. But onwards and upwards to number 19, and that film is called The Terror. And The Terror is an interesting mess. A young offender in Napoleon's army pursues a mysterious woman to the castle of an elderly baron. It stars Jack Nicholson, it stars Boris Karloff, Sandra Knight and Dick Miller. So that is one hell of a top banner there. And there is also this really cool story behind its hodgepodge direction and creation, but I'm not going to get into that until someone out there chooses it for discussion. So right now, I'm just going to say, with the terror, approach it with caution. Next up is Roger Corman's X, the man with X-ray eyes. And the Doctor uses special eye drops in this to give himself X-ray vision. But this new power has disastrous consequences. It stars Ray Milland, who you may well remember from Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder. And I do think that he is great in this one. But there's not a lot else that is great about it. So let's move on. Number 17, we've got a movie here that was directed by the one and the only Francis Ford Coppola. It's called Dementia 13. And after the trailer, I'm going to have a special guest in to chat about it with us. Yeah, you heard me. Not just any special guest. It's the director of Pumpkinhead 4. The director of House of the Dead 2. The director of Transmission, a film which recently premiered at Fright Fest. It's only Michael Hurst. So dig on this synopsis before we actually get into our chat. Shocked by the death of her spouse, a scheming widow hatched a bold plan to get her hands on the inheritance, unaware that she is being targeted by an axe-wielding murderer who lurks in the family estate. What mystery shrouds this noble house? The funeral ceremony is today. Kathleen's dead for seven years. Why do you keep having the same ceremony over and over again? Castle Halloran is a very strange place. 
The kind of place you'd expect a ghost to like to wander around in. And it's haunted by Kathleen. How did she die? She drowned in the pond. You remember all those years ago, the dreams, faces in the shadows. Kathleen stars. One of you has a brilliantly imaginative and sadistic mind. There's something in this house. Tell me what happened. There's some things you don't understand. Not yet. This is a film I'd never seen before. Had you seen this one before? I saw it years before. I rewatched it for the sake of this podcast, and I, you know, I saw it on Prime Video. But I'd seen it as a kid, um, and I'd seen it for the same reason everyone else seen it for. I seen it because it was Francis Ford Coppola's first movie. Then, and you know, the, the truth about Dementia Thirteen is that is its legacy, and that is its reason for being discussed today. I mean, it, as a movie in and of itself, I don't think it merits much. Um, you know, a particular acclaim or attention, but as a stepping stone to what happened afterwards, it's incredibly relevant, you know, and and obviously without that, there's no Godfather, there's no Godfather Part 2, there's no Apocalypse Now, so it's an incredibly important film in that sense and I chose it off the list that you gave me because obviously it has the association with Roger Corman and Roger yeah. Corman is a legend and I worked for Roger Corman uh, a few years ago and Roger what? Corman actually, yeah, I did a script for him, I, he, he hired me to write a screenplay for him and I had to go and I have meetings with him in his office and stuff in Brentwood and he's got RC on the door in gold letters and it's super cool and it's really exciting to work with him and he's super smart he's 90 something years old he's super smart he's he's not lost a step uh, you know mentally at all he's he's very sharp operator and if he financed transmission but he doesn't know it because I used all the money from that screenplay to make transmission and the whole film transmission is dedicated to him and obviously, Transmission was inspired by Galaxy of Terror and Screwballs, two of his movies, you know, were the templates for the movies in the movie. So I love Roger Corman. And that's why Dementia 13 to me is really relevant, because obviously it's one of the instances, one of the many instances in which he really gave a leg up to someone who became a legend later. And the thing that bothers me now about the way the film industry now is that if Francis Ford Coppola was coming up today, he wouldn't have got to make The Godfather or The Godfather Part 2 or Apocalypse Now after doing that because he would have been kind of written off. Yeah. Because Dementia 13 is not great. You know, it has a lot of good things in it. It's well directed in the sense that he's, you can see he's got some flair with the overhead shots and the lake and the underwater shots and the lake and so on and so forth. You can see he's got some directorial flair and some ambition. But the movie's not good. It's, the movie, it's a movie written by a young man in three days, which is how he, how he wrote it. Right. I did some research and stuff. You know, they were they were doing the young races in Europe, and he said to the crew, "I've got some money. I think twenty thousand dollars to make a film in Ireland. Who has a script?" And Francis Ford Coppola said, "I have got a script," and he didn't. He was lying. Of course, he didn't. And he wrote one in three days. And so the thing of it is, you can't, you cannot judge Dementia Thirteen um, against Godfather Two and everything because it's you know Godfather Two was written over a period of twelve months with the help of Hollywood professionals. And then made with millions and millions of dollars of worth of money and people like Robert De Niro in it. 
Whereas Mention 13 was hacked together in three days, filmed a few weeks later in Ireland with an inexperienced crew and a, you know, a, a series of B-movie actors that were not worthy of being in The Godfather. And yet he, you know, he made something that was watchable. It's 75 minutes long in the version I saw. I know there's a shorter version that he directed, directors cut the shorter, but I saw the 75 minute version and it's decent. It hangs together. It plays. Yeah. But what it doesn't do is reinvent the wheel or stun you with his cinematic prowess. It's not something you watch and go, oh my God, I bet he's going to make The Godfather in 10 years. You wouldn't, no one would have believed that. And the thing that the difference between then and now is that that was pre IMDb, that was pre Sundance with these wonderkins like Quentin Tarantino and Steven Soderbergh. And nowadays, you're really judged in your first movie way too much. It should right. we should take a first movie as being at someone's apprenticeship, someone's someone's stewardship. You know, so oh, that, that was them attempting to learn the craft, and that's the way Dementia Thirteen plays to me. It plays like a very competently made film with a bit of flair here and there by a young guy who was 22, 23 at the time, who was showed flashes of talent, but nonetheless, the film's not great. Yeah, it clearly can... rips off the template of Psycho. Clearly, she's the Louise character is meant to be Janet Lee. The difference between Psycho and Dementia 13 is he didn't know enough at the age of 23 to immediately replace the protagonist with someone else that was also sympathetic, which Hitchcock knew you had to do with the sister, with Vera Miles' character. Yeah. So yeah. as soon as Janet Lee's dead, Vera Miles steps in and your movie carries on. Dementia 13, the, the character of Louise, whose name, I, I can't remember the actress's name, unfortunately, but she dies. She's quite good, actually, in the first part of the movie. Right, She's quite yeah, good yeah. protagonist. She dies, and then a whole bunch of very stiff shirts take over. No one else really grabs the reign of being the hero of the movie, and it drifts, you know, it has a very bad second act. It sort of drifts, you know, without without much control. And these are the classic mistakes. I know I've written... I've written uh, 18 movies that have been made maybe 20 movies have been made i know screenwriting mistakes when i watch them on screen that's a that's a, a young screenwriter's <laughs> early mistake he wouldn't make that again when he was at his heyday in the 80s sure back, sure back in 1962 he didn't know any better so he thought oh, i'll kill off the lead character it'll be a cool nod to psycho or surprise the audience the same way the shower scene did and it'll be great and he's only he's writing the thing in three days he's not got much time to second against himself that's mad if he had more time, he'd have thought, hang on a minute, shit, I've lost my only leading character. I've lost the most interesting character in the movie. Who am I going to replace her with? Classic screenwriting 101. But he yeah. didn't do it. And therefore, Dementia 13 has a terrible second act. You know, that doesn't work at all. And I got quite bored watching it. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned it. Because like, it's like an elephant in the room with this film. that it, I think it actually starts off incredibly well the whole boat scene and mm -hmm. the way it goes underwater and just the, the tinny radio yeah everything about that it got me really excited sort of like tingles like oh my word like you can't be this good out of the bat like that no way right and yeah it couldn't keep that up but it's i was nice. genuinely excited about it yeah, I mean, obviously, but you but you are watching it through the lens of knowing what came next. You know, yeah. I think in 1962, you'd have found the first 20 minutes engaging, you know. But you, you're right. From now, when we watch it now, you're watching the first 20 minutes and thinking, oh, my God, I found the Coppola masterpiece. I can't believe it. It's really yeah. good. Because you're judging against all the other things and you're lumping it in with the other classics that came later. Um, that couldn't have happened back in the time. And it didn't happen. If you if you read contemporary reviews of Dementia 13, nobody liked it. it. It disappeared on the bottom half of Double Bills, you know. It didn't make any splash at all. But because the film industry was much more sort of egalitarian back then and less focused on people's first films, 
it got him to the second film and the third film and the fourth film. And eventually, of course, eventually they started making classics, you know. Uh, I wish that happened more nowadays. I thought I feel like I used to say to my film students, you know, if you do a first movie and it's not great, put a different name on it. Just release nice. it if you want. Put it on, I put it on Prime Video. Do whatever you want with it, but put a pseudonym on it because you'll be judged according. You know, you'll you'll be judged by it forever afterwards. And that's because of Sex Lies and Videotape and Reservoir Dogs. That's the two things that did it, in my view. That's the two things that made the first film everyone's defining movie. Which right. is madness. I mean, what other, you know, when when was Van Gogh's first painting ever held up as being, you know, that, that guy shows promise or that guy doesn't show promise? He probably did his first painting when he was nine. It's probably crap, you know, and that's the way <laughs> most first films are. They're usually bad. Filmmaking, as I've definitely discovered over the years, is, def is, is more of a craft than an art. And it is something you have to learn. And it is something you do by trial and error. And it is something that goes wrong frequently because filmmaking is hard, difficult thing to do, you know. I, I, I try and say to people with B-movies, if you're doing a B-movie like Pumpkinhead 4 and stuff, they don't start those films at 11 a.m. filming them, you know, because it's gonna—it's only a B-movie. You have to get up at five in the morning. You have to go, in that case, to Romania, which is, you know, hell on earth. You've got to go, you've got to wake up at five in the morning. You've got about 14-hour days, 15-hour days, 16-hour days, even to make something like Pumpkinhead 4. So filmmaking is really fucking hard. And, you know, to judge someone according to their first attempt at it, it's kind of madness. But there's many, many careers that, you know, who knows? There's many, many first films that didn't quite work out that have been the end of people's careers. I think I read somewhere once that in Sundance Film Festival, even 60% of the directors that get a film into Sundance never make another film again. And those people yeah. who got into the Sundance Film Festival. So those are people who got to the top of the, the pile, you know, in the, in the year that they made the first movie. So if you can imagine what the statistics are overall, it's probably something like 85% or something of people that make a first film never make a second. And part of that reason is that, you know, you, you kind of get written off. And I remember when I did my first movie, it was called New Blood. And it was after we did this thing called Project Assassin. But I was like 25, maybe. And I'd managed to raise a two and a half million dollar budget back off the, you know, somewhat uh, partial success of Project Assassin, which is an independent film we made. And I had John Hurt. So John Hurt was in it. And Carrie Ann Moss was in it. He'd just done The Matrix. And Joe Pantoliano was in it, also from The Matrix. And I had Sean Wayans in it as one of the Wayans brothers. And I was 25 years old doing my yeah. first movie. I couldn't fucking direct traffic, let alone a movie. I was just literally trying to keep my head above water. And then to me, I know the film came out and it didn't do great. You know, nobody nobody talks about it being a, you know, a Reservoir Dogs or a Sex Lights videotape. And why would they? It isn't. But I learned a lot doing it. But yeah, I never managed to capture that aura again of being a first-time filmmaker who might be Tarantino. Got it. You only get that once. And that's yeah. kind of crazy. In fact, that, that film, New Blood, was financed by a guy who turned down Reservoir Dogs because Tarantino worked in his office at the time when he wrote Reservoir Dogs. And Tarantino had slipped in the script and he'd read it and thought, it's good, but it's more of a play. It's not really a movie. And he didn't make it. And I think that's why when the next sort of 25-year-old came up with a gangster script, because New Blood was a gangster movie, I think when the next guy turned up with a script that was a bit like Reservoir Dogs, I think he made it for that reason, thinking, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to get hit twice. But of course, there are very, very few Quentin Tarantinos in the world, and I am not one of those guys. Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpick there. Um, I'm going to wheel it back to, to Coppola. So we've mentioned several of his sort of massive films, but he didn't seem to like enjoy horror after that. Um, maybe it was that experience. I don't know. But the only other two I could find was Bram Stoker's Dracula and the film called Twixt, 
that he's done yeah. far more recently. So and that was a multi multi narrative branching thing, wasn't it? He was trying to introduce a new form of storytelling with Twixt. So everyone, everyone dislikes Twixt because yeah. they see the movie that got released. But in actual right. fact, that was a really bold Francis Ford Coppola swinging for the fences nonsense thing, where he was trying to make this thing where it was basically choose your own adventure in the cinema screen. That's what he was trying to do with ah. Twix. Twix always gets a really bad rep because they, they, they released a cut of it as a normal movie. But it wasn't meant to be a normal movie. That's why it doesn't work as a normal movie. It was meant to be a thing where audience members were going to sit in the cinema and choose what happened next. Myself he and my wife. lots of we different li- branches of narrative so you could choose your own adventure sort of thing. And that was why Twix was bold. I mean, Coppola in his whole career has taken so many insane moves. And now at the age of 83, he's taking another one. He's making that megalopolis thing, which is self-financing for a hundred million dollars. So it's going to be insane. It's going, it's going to be, be insane. insane. Whatever it is, it's going to be crazy. Yeah, and whatever it is, it's not going to be another Avengers or another Spider-Man. It's going to be something different. You know, whatever it, however it turns out, it's going to be interesting. So he's always done these risky things. But yeah, I think in terms of horror, he maybe got turned off by Dimension Thirteen because, um, you know, as you can tell from the credits, Roger Corman panicked at some point making it, even though it was so low budget, and hired a guy called Jack Hill, who did Spider Baby, to come in and shoot some extra horror scenes. So I think two of the axe murders in the movie are not directed by Coppola. Oh, and that wow. interference will mess you with your head. You know, it will, it will turn your stomach a little bit because you are making something that's your baby, even if you wrote it in three days. Yeah. It's still your baby. And to have someone come in and reshoot bits of it is harsh. So I, I don't imagine he looks back on Dimension 13 with any fondness. And of course, he did. Um, he released a director's cut, which is shorter than the movie I saw. And I think what he did is took out all the Jack Hill stuff. Good. Good for him. Yeah, he can do yeah. that because he's Francis for Coppola now. If he wasn't, <laughs> if, he had, if he hadn't made it in Apocalypse Now, no one would care about his director's cut of Dimension 13. You know? Man, this has been amazing. Um, a, f- a final thing before we go. And thank you so much for giving up some of your time, Michael. Um, right. Okay. So, Fright Fest is happening. You're going to be there. But when that dust has settled, have you already got Stokes in the Pride? Do you already know what's going on after this? Or are you waiting to see how that happens? How that plays out i in terms of my you know my uh authorship if that's a word and my my self-finance or horror career i'm very much waiting to see what happens with transmission i do have i have another career which is like a b movie you know million dollar two million dollar career you know i make these horror movies at and i have an action movie that may be happening with um a producer over here uh we can't make it now because of the strikes obviously with the actors and so on and so forth but it's called Blast Radius, and it's about a car bomb that gets carjacked. So I might make that if the strikes resolve, but that would be separate. I'm going to have to have a, a real look at what happens with transmission and stuff and decide whether I want to do another self-financed horror movie, whether I want to carry down that road, because it has been creatively satisfying. It has been a lot of fun in its own way. It's been very stressful, but I did enjoy it overall. And so if transmission goes well, I'll do another one. And... At the when you finish the uh, transmission, is it something that you felt relief, or do you still want to tinker with it? Even though the final edit's in and done and dusted now, do you still want to go back and change things? Honestly, no. I think I think I'm. I'll be honest with you. I've burned out on it now. It, I did a lot of work on it for four years, and I've I've tinkered with it. I think now you know it's the best it can be. Yeah. I think in the shape it is now. I think I I take I. I messed with it so much for so long. I think it's the best it can be. And um, yeah, no, I don't think there'll be a director's cut either shorter or longer of a transmission. I think I'm going to leave it be now and just hope people like it. 
Well, it was enough to get me and my co-host to be like going down your uh, filmography. And uh, I want to, I want to, I need to be getting Pumpkinhead 4. Like, I just, okay. I have no idea how to even find that now. We've I know it. there's a DVD, but it's not, it's not, it's like circulation because it was made for a sci-fi channel. It was a sci-fi channel originally. Yeah. So they broadcast it as, as immediately, pretty much. And uh, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think I did my best with it. Funnily enough, the director of Pumpkinhead 3, because they had to make them back-to-back for tax reasons, so the director of Pumpkinhead 3 is Jake West, and he's got a film at Fright Fest as well. So I'm going to see him. I haven't seen him since we met in Romania doing the Pumpkinhead movies, and that was 15 years ago now. He's a a nice guy. I love him. He's really good. For tax reasons, for some bullshit tax reasons, I had to be on set of Pumpkinhead 3 every day because they were doing the films back to back and they had to make right. some sort of overarching tax deal. So I couldn't like leave and go and prepare for Pumpkinhead 4. I had to be on the set of Pumpkinhead 3 all the time. So I got to know Jake pretty well because I watched him work for, you know, three, four weeks in Romania. He's a talented, talented guy, yeah. you know, super smart guy, super sweet guy. And um, no, I've never, I haven't seen him since because he stayed in London and I moved back to LA. And I'm really looking forward to seeing him again. I've got tickets to see his documentary about the... Uh, uh, Cliff Trembro, whatever his name that's is. That's him, that's him. I, I really want to see that because I'm interested by that guy anyway. But I, I want to support Jake and I, I'll definitely go and see his movie. Well. well, well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been awesome. Thank you very much, boy. Appreciate it, brother. Well, a huge thanks there to Michael Hurst for chatting with me about that debut full-length Coppola. But now we've got to go. We've got to part ways and climb further up the ladder of the chart. And my next pick is The Demon, a.k.a. Il Dimoni. And whilst this one is pretty watchable, the flabby middle ruins the whole flow of this otherwise infectious witch story with a stellar performance from Dahlia Lavi. Is she possessed or are the village folk just dicks? That's what we're going for here. And for the most part, this thing delivers. But higher than that, yeah, even better than the demon is the ghost. And I saw this one on YouTube. Why do I watch it? Well, Barbara Steele's in it. And she really knocks this thing out of the park once it gets cooking. It does take a while to get there. It's always the way with Inheritance Horrors. Uh, I've got to shout out also the cinematographer, Raphael Masiotti here for delivering some quite impressive visual moments in the crypt. It's proper gothic macabre. But in at 14, with a bullet, it's the girl who knew too much. And this is meant to be the very first giallo, right? Is it? Is it? I think it is. I couldn't wait to watch it. I am gutted that the Arrow video is currently out of print, but I was super impressed with that very sharp upload that's on YouTube right now. Uh, There is this odd comedic tone in this, but the gorgeous look of the murder mystery thing, it just trumps all. I especially love that film noir voiceover style narration stuff that's going on at the top end of the film. It's cool, but... I know that so many of you out there love this thing to bits. I think that there was just a stack of better films to be seen this year. Plus, there is no way that this next choice won't anger people. So don't worry about the girl who knew too much when they've just placed the haunting, the haunting at number 13 in the chart. Number 13, would you believe? 
here to discuss this movie, The Haunting, is a regular now over on Patreon, but I do believe this is his very first time on the main channel. Uh, we initially got chatting via email, and I invited him there to chat about Amateurville and the video nasties, and what happened is that I've enjoyed it so much, we just can't keep him a secret over there on Patreon, can we? Of course not. So, here is Eric Ellicock. What is so good about The Haunting, eh? Well, here's the synopsis. Dr. Markway doing research to prove the existence of ghosts. He investigates Hill House, a large, eerie mansion with a lurid history of violent death and insanity. Tonight the dead will walk and you, unbeliever, will scream unheard. Stop it! The haunting. The haunting. What do we really know of that other world of hauntings, of apparitions in the night, of the sinister powers of darkness? The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, the brilliant producer of West Side Story, and stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. You cannot deny terror. You cannot look the other way. You have to face the supernatural, face the chilling mysteries of forces you cannot understand or control when The Haunting holds you in its spell the haunting. the haunting eric welcome to the show thank you paul nice to nice to be back oh yeah we're on the main channel first time for like the majority of listeners so yeah, yeah. hey eric Whee! Whee! <laughs> I was, I, you, some of you might recognize me from amityville the evil escapes but <laughs> the classic the classic oh, you, you forgot fourth, to mention that part yeah <laughs> this time it is an actual classic uh, right. we're talking about the haunting now you mentioned just then that this mm. is one of your favorites give us your history yeah so i came to this probably in my late teens um i had done the usual fair for people that were into horror in the 80s at that time you know i was doing a lot of Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Streets, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I was, and I think I was probably just getting um, a little bit burnt out on that sort of stuff, you know, decided that maybe I needed to go back and explore some of the classics. So this was the first time that I think I ever consciously went out and spent money on a black and white movie. And it was, this would have been right around the time when I think movie companies were realizing that they could, um, and there was a market out there for people who wanted to watch films in widescreen, you know, because up, up until this point, you know, we were in the, the video era where it was all like pan and scan. I remember, you know, bringing, bringing home widescreen movies and sitting down and watching them with my parents and my parents being outraged because in their mind, they were getting so much less picture, you know, it's like, well, this would be a good film if you could get rid of the black bars at the top and the bottom. And I'm trying to explain to them, well, no, that's, that's the point. You're actually getting more picture, but anyway. So yeah, you know, just, it, it got, I can't remember who put it out, but somebody put it out on VHS, took it home, didn't know too much about it other than the fact that it was, it was regarded as a classic at this point. I hadn't read the book that it was based on. It would be a few years later that I would go back and, and, and check out the Shirley Jackson novel, but yeah, from the, from the first time that I saw it, I just fell in love with it. I probably hadn't seen many films from that 60s era. I guess I was familiar with like Psycho, think, thinking of black and white films specifically. Right. So Psycho I was familiar with, um, Night of the Living Dead, 
Um, although even then, I think the only copy that you could buy in the UK was that colorized version that they put out. I don't know if you remember that, but like for a large, a large point in time, the only kind of legit copy of Night of the Living Dead you could get was, um, yeah, an awful colorized version where I just remember it. Yeah. Right. With the, 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 the zombie from the beginning has that insane, vivid blonde hair. So it was, it was love at first sight. I just, I loved everything about that film. I've gone back to it. I probably go back to it every three or four years. It, it scares me even now. I watched it. Um, I watched it a couple of times in preparation for the podcast, you know, once just to kind of refresh, refresh it. And then again with, um, with a commentary on it, just to see wow. you know, what, what Robert Wise had to say about it. Cause the commentary, it's amazing that a commentary that I assume was done so late after the actual film was made, they managed to get everybody. They've got Robert Wise, the director, they've got Nelson Gilling, the screenwriter, plus they've got the four main actors. They're all involved in it. Wow. I, it's, it's incredible, yeah. you know, for a film of that, that vintage. So yeah, love it. I, and I think that the point I was going to make was that both times that I watched it recently, even though I guess I was watching it a bit more analytically than I might usually do, it was still scaring me. And that was the thing that to me just makes it such a powerful film is it just, there's something about that. And maybe it's because it's been a part of my life for quite a long time now. And it's every time I watch it, it's bringing up these old memories and old associations, but yeah. Love it. Classic. Maybe I would say that on any given day, if you asked me what my favorite horror film was, it would be either this or The Shining. Um, and it probably has a lot to do with which I watched most recently. So I mean, that's really interesting. Like, <laughs> I found black and white to be a real hurdle, just like I did in my teens when uh, I, I wanted to watch films with subtitles. Like, yeah, I, I remember um, J-Horror starting to be like this buzzword and i was like mm-hmm. oh, well, i just don't know if i can be bothered yeah and sure once you take that leap and it's like oh my god that was amazing once yeah. that gets you it opens up a world i can right. only imagine young you going oh i've got this whole world of horror <laughs> <to do." laughs> wow absolutely yeah i think you you need because sometimes that kind of stuff, it, it can seem boring or intimidating, you know, I mean, and this is a two hour movie as well. It's not, it's not over a lot of the universal movies, you know, that you can get those done in an hour. So if you don't like it, well, you've only wasted an hour of your your life, you know, whereas this it's like, no, you're going to sit down and watch, watch a a proper film. So. Let's get into it. This is right. I can't wait. Let's do it. Okay. Robert Wise mentioned him already. And I think why this is so successful that there, you can pull this apart and there is a ton of different working parts here, but his direction is what really pulls it together for me. It makes it easier for someone that was reluctant to watch black and white stuff to like get into the groove because mm. it's a sort of timeless way of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, I fell into it really easily. How do you feel like his control, his mastery of this film works? Is this what you pulled out from it? Or was it just those scares initially? It's interesting that you you call it timeless because it is. But at the same time, I think back then it was also surprisingly innovative. You know, like I've read a lot about techniques and, you know, tricks that he was using. Like, I guess um, 
the the house itself that they shot they were using um you know they tried to shoot it in certain ways and it just wasn't looking scary enough so they used an infrared camera to shoot it and suddenly the house looks way more menacing than it did just by using a regular a regular camera um and there was also something about using a particular i think um particular diameter lens for certain shots in the film that at that point was considered quite experimental and the people that were producing the camera were saying no we don't want to let you use this in the making of this film because we're worried that you're going to come back to us and say you fucked up my film you know yeah. so they actually had to have him sign what do you call it a document basically saying i understand that if this film wow. comes out looking awful then i you know I, I can't hold you responsible so so it does it has that timeless look um black and white but i think he was and this is probably what makes him an amazing director is he was approaching this and thinking right what can i bring that's new to this how can i innovate um and, and make this film um yeah like, like use the technology that i've got available to to make this bring this house alive because i think that's one of the things that he does really well in the film is arguably you've got your four main characters and then you've got this fifth character which is the house and the house just feels from from the first moment that you see it um well Maybe not the first moment, because the first moment is right at the very right at the very beginning, you know, yeah. where you just have that kind of like, yeah, very stark shot of it. But where she pulls up, where Eleanor pulls up, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think you get a reaction shot for her first, and then you get the house. So you're you're kind of left to imagine what she's seeing, and then you see the house. And yeah, he just he just shoots the hell out of it there's so many moments in this film that you could point to like at the very beginning of the film where we're having the the whole story set up of all of the deaths that have occurred there's the scene of the second wife where she gets to the top of the stairs and she she senses something plummets down and her head just kind of tilts back as she hits the floor all those low low shots that he does you know like again it just it all works together to make this place feel you know as, as they say in the film like vile diseased you know it's yeah it's amazing i i can't believe the set dressing like watching it uh, mm. recently just a few days ago like the, the the amount of people he's pulled in to make this thing work i'll talk about a one particular scene with the editing's just incredible in a moment but like just the the set decoration is so incredibly busy mm -hmm. and it doesn't look like it's trying to be it's just that's how it looks yeah that's it i believe yeah. it it's so much to to take in you can't yes. watch a scene and have taken everything in it's not possible right to do right that. right you're picking bits and i love that i love absolutely it. you're right and it's so, it's so ornate you know like again all of those faces it um it feels like almost every scene there's there's something looking at the characters you know like some sculpture kind of tucked away in the corner or you know a gargoyle on the front of the house like looking down you know it, it feels like the characters are being observed all the time by the house whatever's in the house i want to talk about this scene it is towards the end but i just this is what really impresses me and i just think like i don't know how they did it and this is from 63 yeah, so I, I love that. If I, oh, how the hell did you do that? And if you know, 
like because you've listened to those commentaries a lot like, <laughs> like it's that iron sort of girdery staircase that yeah goes up and it's just they're gonna come off the, at the seams at any moment i just think it's a wonder of editing like how i completely believe that and i can't figure out how they've done it like it's so suspenseful um, yeah any ideas I, I know I read about it, but I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember the details. I do know that like there's the scene where the camera is, I think the camera is, is it spiraling up the staircase? And I think yeah. that that was a, a simple case of just, again, shooting it in reverse and play playing it backwards. So you get your, you get a fairly easy shot there. But yeah, no, there's, yeah, the, I mean, the, the whole idea of that, that, um, you know the, the staircase and, and what it re comes to represent in the film and, and what it represents in the, have you read the book have you read no the, no not at all dude i would i would totally recommend it if you're looking for some good you know spooky season some halloween reading then then go go and check it out again i, I reread it before before this because i really wanted to just kind of immerse myself in 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 the book and its story, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good one. It's a good one. And so, so much. I mean, I think that's what makes this film great is he's taking from a text that's already amazing. You know, Shirley Jackson, I think is a, is still a pretty underrated writer. I think her reputation is definitely growing, but I think, I don't think she's quite there yet as one of the, um, you know, and I'm not sure her reputation is unassailable. So, I think it's it's important that you know we 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 talk about this film and and you know that the adaptions like the 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 Netflix the Haunting of Hill House hopefully is bringing people back to the original book. But basically, I mean, you know, you take that book and then you bring in a director like Robert Wise. I mean, I think this was his film between you do like West Side Story and The Sound of Music either it's side bad. of it. I'm not sure which which side it was, but. It's amazing. I mean, Robert Wise could be yeah. your, you know, if you like musicals, then Robert Wise might be your favorite director. If you like science fiction, you've probably seen The Day the Earth Stood Still. He might be your favorite science fiction director. If you like horror movies, he might be your favorite horror director. You know, this is a guy that just brings his A game to whatever genre he's working in. You know, it's amazing. Some some have just got it, haven't they? I, mean, I, I love doing that when you click on like uh, when you go to an old film. So you're not I'm not immersed in this world. And then I click on right. What what's your like catalog? What have you done? Whoa. Whoa. Right. It's amazing. Right. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And I think he you know, he um he came out of the Val Luton school. He did. um Oh, is it Curse of the Cat People? I think I think that's one of his. Um, so he, I think he wanted to kind of channel that, that Val Luton tone in this where it's, it's, you know, a lot of implication, you know, you never see anything. I want to mention another thing. Uh, I'm sorry to, to keep going on about editing no, and like no. the actual technique, but I was so impressed. I, the, the first half or so of the film, I, di I wasn't loving it. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. and it was this particular moment. Uh, and I like I liked it. I was enjoying everything, but yeah. like I was just like, wow, this isn't going to penetrate like a real high thing for me, and I'm not I'm not going to maybe come back for a few more years now. Mm -hmm. And then something really hit me, and it was like all of a sudden, like as this film is going on, you're starting to notice things are tightening up in the way that they're filming, mm. and and things are, are getting a lot more focused, and also a lot more weird. Like there is a mm -hmm. shot where Eleanor's dreaming. 
uh, and then it concentrates on like a pattern on the wall and it's a face you can see within the paper uh, oh my gosh so cleverly done oh my gosh yeah that's that's it's amazing and again i think a shot like that yeah there's there's obviously stuff you know you've got you've got the voiceover you've got her reaction to it you've also got that amazing kind of soundscape that's that's part of the film as well and apparently i was reading i think that some of that might have actually been played on set for the actors to respond to while they were performing Oh, reminds me a little bit of like, you know, somebody like William Friedkin and what he would do on The Exorcist, you know, just like really messing with the actors. Um, But then I I guess subsequently some of it was layered into the soundtrack that made made it into the finished film. But anyway, going back to that face image, you can read so much into that, you know, you're just staring at it. And I, I can, I feel like my first viewing, I'm like, what am I seeing here? What, what do you want me to, what am I looking at? You know, and that whole idea that, you know, humans when confronted with certain things will, will make faces out of things because that's what we like to do. We might like to make things familiar here. You're doing that, but it's exactly the opposite. This is not a comforting feeling that you're getting from like watching this. And then, I d- we're probably not doing spoilers, right? We would definitely no, no, we to... can. Well, I reckon we, we can spoil. Yeah, we this can one. do. Will well, the yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so I mean, the way that scene ends is just for me, it's terrifying. You know, like with the whole, the whole, whose hand have I been holding? Oh my gosh! Again, you know, little, little, well, not not so little, but like you know, late teens me watching this, probably tucked away at the top of the house alone. You know, last last thing at night, curtains pulled for the first time. I was just, I didn't know it was coming. And when you see where Theodora is, she's on the other side of the room. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. No, it still gives me chills. That's what I mean by timeless. <laughs> you know, films that will come out today, you'll see those same scares. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's not your hand. <laughs> yeah. All the time, all the time. It's a cliche now and it wasn't there. Yeah. So it's so right. Cool. I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about, like the history of kind of ghost films up to this point. I mean, I think we'd had The Innocence at this point, which is obviously another another classic. And then there was The Uninvited, I think maybe in the 40s, but I'm not sure how many other really serious attempts there had been to, to make, um, you know, supernatural haunted house stories that were serious, serious minded, that were setting out to mess with you as the audience, you know? You're going to probably not forgive me at this point. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give you my <laughs> my issue with the film and why yes. this one isn't even in my top 10. And oh, wow. Okay. All right. Purely Eleanor. Um, mm. So I, yeah. I, from the moment she's on screen, like I'm intrigued and I'm like, right, where are you going to take me? Like, I love her pre-story. And, and like, right, I'm going to escape that and I'm going to get get to and live potentially live a dream here. Like just yep. going to escape my past. Fantastic. Great setup. But I don't feel like she develops. She's already, it's like that mm. thing King says about Nicholson in The Shining. You're, yeah, He's absolutely. already there and she's yeah. already there. I don't trust her from the off uh, because it's too much of that performance. And like, I know there's, you know, her neuroses and whatever is making her be this way. But mm. at the same time, I just wanted a bit more, a bit more than what I got with her. And I found her a little annoying by the end. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And I, I didn't mind what what ended up happening, you know, because I was like, oh, 
It's been so much. It's been a hell of a ride. And I think just, everything just get else the, that's it. I think everything else in the film has been not just good, but it's been amazing, you know, it's real top tier stuff. And yet I find her dragging me down to like mm. I'm concentrating on her performance. Sure. Um, how do you feel about me saying that? <laughs> Please don't switch off. Yeah. <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> Goodbye. See ya. Um <laughs> No, I, I I get it, and I think it is one of the main criticisms of the film. I think for people that maybe don't right. don't like the film as much as as much as some people do, you're right. You know, she does. She kind of starts at ten. So where's she going to go from there? I think maybe again because I watched it at such a young age, and I was perhaps a less sophisticated viewer than I am now. You know, I didn't really have a problem with it. There's, I I think for me. She seems so scared already at the beginning of the film that it made me scared and it just unsettled me from the very beginning. I that, get that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really I didn't really mind the fact that she doesn't that she doesn't really, you know, change although I I, I feel like she does during the film. I think she definitely goes goes on a journey. I think, you know, there's those, there's a couple of times in the film where she references the house consuming her. And so it's almost rather than watching her, you're watching her relationship with the house, you know, because when she first gets there, leading up to it, she's all about it. You know, she keeps telling people, I've been waiting for something like this to happen all my, all my life. And it's like, really? You, you, what's wrong with you? Why would you yeah. want this? You know, but she wants something because she, you know, she's come from this um, awful, awful situation where, you know, she's been looking after her mother and there's the whole question of, you know, did she inadvertently cause her mother's death? You know, so the first time she sees the house again, she's like, oh my gosh, this thing is vile. It's awful. Get me away from here. And she, she, you know, any sane person would probably turn around at that point, be like, no, I'm good. You keep your house. Thank you very much. Whatever. But yeah. no, she keeps going, you know, she keeps going. And she seems to have that kind of constant back and forth with the house where she, you know, she, she almost, she wants it to, to consume her. And at the same time, she's repelled by it. You know, there's that scene where, she goes to the library and she can't even enter the room because of the smell and the way that it, right. you know, brings back the memories of, of, you know, of her relationship with her mother. So no, I do get it. And I think that it is, it's definitely a little bit one note. There's this kind of, for want of a better word, hysteria to her performance from the very beginning. But for me, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't really have a problem with that because, you know, most of the time I'm like too scared by what's going on around her to, 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 you know, worry too much about that. I think I've got two favorite moments and she's in both. So, you know, there, there we yeah. go. Like, first of all is the banging uh, towards oh, the beginning of the film, which yeah. is just absolutely incredible. As you mentioned, that sound design is something else. Right. Like I can, yeah. I, I had headphones on and was oh, just yeah. like, this is so good. You know, yeah. you, rubbing your hands oh, yeah and again it's become like you say it's become such a cliche now i mean what kind of supernatural horror film doesn't have banging in it to yeah. to suggest the presence of something ominous you know <laughs> oh it's got to be the pipes yeah i get it <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my one of my very favorite and it's an odd one but i love 
the writing on the wall with her name mm. because that makes my mind go firing off like how's that right. got there yeah like, yeah and i'm really intrigued on your take on that so <gasps> does the book reveal anything well this is one of the things because you know i feel like a lot of the conversation around this is you know how much of what's happening in this is actually happening versus how much is happening in the minds of the characters and i guess nelson getting the screenwriter had this interesting revelation, I think like maybe three quarters of the way through the script where he was suddenly like, oh my gosh, I understand this film. You know, this basically, this isn't a haunted house film. This is a story about a young woman, Eleanor. She's in an asylum. The banging that she's hearing are the doors of the, 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 the you know, the asylum doors being closed. The people that she's met in the house are the other people. Some of them are probably patients, some of them are doctors, orderlies, nurses. So, so Nelson Gidding and Robert Wise go and visit Shirley Jackson and they're like, we've, we've cracked your book. We understand it. And she's like, no, it's a haunted house story. And I just love that kind it's of like, title. <laughs> yeah, right. It's kind of, you know, so it's for me, that's one of the, the, the moments in the film where it's hard for me to understand how it cannot be a supernatural film, because if, if you if you don't want it to be a supernatural film, then you have to assume that either Eleanor herself has written that or one of the other characters in the film has written it. And I don't buy Eleanor having done it. Nice. Um, and even though, you know, Theo has, again, this kind of really interesting relationship with Eleanor, there's this kind of dance back and forth between the two characters, which I think is one of the, the, the highlights of the film. Um, and she almost seems to have this kind of slightly antagonistic relationship to her at times. I don't think she's anywhere near sadistic enough to, to you know, disturb this poor woman by writing this on the wall. So then you have to assume that somehow the house is manifesting it. It's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird moment in the film. I would say that that's probably, it, it, it works. It's really effective in the film. But when I think about it rationally, I'm not sure that I love it. <laughs> it is one of those like you've got to think about that and it does give you a little bit of time to like like put some thoughts together in your head like this it calms down for a few seconds before she goes off on one again yeah uh, so you're like trying to put it together really quickly like okay which one of you's done this to her and then right thinking, oh, it can't have been you it can't yeah is there another character in this that we haven't met yet that's going to pop up and like you know of like 11th hour reveal that's it is the dudleys that's right <laughs> it could be actually like oh my gosh mrs dudley she's amazing i she? you know yeah. she is i and i love the way you know she does her super ominous presentation of the house to eleanor and then she tries to do the exact same thing with theodore and theodore is just like talking over the whole thing and eleanor tries to bounce off that by quoting by quoting her, but it kind of, it almost doubles back on Eleanor as well. And it's like, no, you should be scared. There's definitely something in this house and there's a reason why we don't come here in the dark, you know? She's great, I, I love her. I was honestly, when it started up and, and because I didn't, I'd seen it a long time ago and I'd also seen it now, uh, I couldn't remember, like, Mr. Dudley, you look suspicious of a lot of things. What are you up to, Sunshine? <laughs> uh, so, right. again, I thought the same thing. Right at the beginning, he's so great. 
like I, I just love his attitude about letting it, even letting her in. Brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. And that's another thing I like Eleanor's um, Eleanor's kind of relationship with him. Again, it's it's to me it's not as one note as it seems because sometimes she's incredibly fragile. She's you know she's very very um, troubled. But when she feels like she has a right to something, she will stand up and she's like, no, I'm expected. You need to open these gates now and let me in. And he's like, oh, OK, all right. In you come, you know, probably not a good idea, but but in you come. So another question, another question. Sorry, I want to know your ideas on these things. That's why I was so excited about talking about mm. this one. Um, no, the it's, voiceover. It's all good. This is the bit that's quite divisive within yeah. fans of the film themselves. So people like will flatly love the film and but there's the butt and the butt yeah. is that voiceover like how what's your take on it i don't i didn't mind it no i don't mind it either i mean i think that we have this idea that voiceover in film is is a bad thing because if you're a good filmmaker you should be able to show what you're trying to convey without needing somebody to tell you you know like it's not a book it's a visual yeah. medium so so show don't tell but no, I, I don't have any kind of problem with it. I think it really adds to it. I love, I mean, you've got that, you've got the kind of the bookend, I guess, where you've got, is it like Dr. Markway at the beginning, kind of giving you the history of the house, a lot of which is just pulled directly, at least the beginning is pulled directly from the book. And then you've got her, you've got Eleanor right at the end of the film, giving exactly the same voiceover narration as well. And I just love the way it's kind of bookended by those two sections. But then her throughout the film, I'm not sure that you would necessarily be able to convey as much without that narration. You know, if you've just got the camera trained on her and you're expecting her to be able to react to what's going on in the film, that's asking an awful lot of her as an actress to be able to to do that so no I, I i think it adds to the tension i think it gives you a really good insight into how she's feeling i kind of love it yeah, <laughs> there's really not much about this film that i don't like so i'm starting to see you, you can you can see it. that right um, i agree i think it's good to have an in a monologue where it's like her inner thoughts rather yeah. than like describing the scene that we can right. see it doesn't feel right. lazy at any point which is like in when i've watched that blade runner one um, mm. and, I, and like you can tell harrison ford can't be bothered yeah uh, why are you making me do this and that that and it's just like oh yeah this is this is hard work why have you yeah. done this never felt like that yeah, never felt like it. yeah okay so Mm -mm -mm. so i want to go through other adaptations now yes uh, and uh, you've oh read the book so this is something else so yeah. let's throw the book in there so we've got the 1963 adaptation we've got the 1999 one with another classic <laughs> okay are we going he, there he lied uh, <laughs> and then we've got haunting of hill house of course right. the flanagan one and um, i take it for you books the top thing you know, I've, I've, I've been thinking about this and I think so often what you get introduced to first is the one that comes to mean the most to you. And so I'm probably going to upset a lot of people here, but I'm going to say for me, it's, it's the 1963 film. If I'm only going to have one version of this narrative in my life, that's the one that I'm going to choose. The book is amazing. And I think if you haven't read it and you're listening to this, definitely go and read it. Um, Shirley Jackson, again, amazing writer. 
interestingly, you know, there's there's enough differences between the book and the film that I think you'll get stuff out of reading the book. One of the things that the filmmakers chose to do quite deliberately, I think, is um, keep the events of the film pretty much entirely within the house, which I think was a really good choice. It makes it quite claustrophobic, yeah, very yeah. claustrophobic. But in the book, there are scenes where particularly um, Nell and Theodora are kind of exploring the grounds together, which does lead to one really, really cool scene, um, which is which reveals a lot, I think, about Theodora's character, maybe more than Nell's. But I don't think that the film misses it. And I think the film maybe is stronger again, like I say, because it keeps everything confined within the house. Um, the, was it 1999 version? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I went to see that when it first came out. I, you know, I went with a friend who was a couple years younger than me. You know, he was just getting into horror. Um, so I think maybe this was going to be the first time that he had seen uh, a horror movie at the cinema. And we were like, yeah, great. Because I was telling him, yeah, have you seen the original? He's like, no, no, I don't think so. Oh, it's brilliant, mate. You're going to, you know, I'm sure this remake's going to be amazing. How, how could it not be? And... Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not it's not great. It's not great. You've seen it, yeah? I saw it at the time. Okay, yeah. I, I was disappointed, but I was pretty disappointed with most horror at that period. Yeah, like, that's an, yeah, that's a good really point. searching for anything that yeah. sort of made me feel like it did in the 80s. But now I've started really reappraising 90s horror and, and loving yeah. so much of it that I initially yeah. thought, hmm. But this one, it still didn't make it for me. It still didn't no. get there. It's an, in, I mean, it's Jan de Bont, right? Who's like the director's like the speed guy. It's an interesting choice of director for a film like this. I mean, it just, for me, it misses everything that makes the first film great. It's like they sat down and they completely misunderstood <laughs> what, yeah, make makes the first film a classic. You know, if the, the, the first one is, pretty subtle you know i mean it's i feel like you know there's a you never really see anything um you, you certainly never see any ghosts whereas the remake is just throws all of that out of the window so full disclosure this the the the, the mike flanagan one um i um i hadn't seen up until i because I, I obviously knew i was coming on here and i'm like right i've got to have an opinion about this wow. you know and i i've known that it's a classic or not a classic but you know i since it's come out people yeah, seem to love classic. it you know you yeah right people, people like people like mike flanagan a lot um so watch the first two episodes this week so um haven't seen the whole thing yet so you know no spoilers i was a little bit underwhelmed maybe like with those first two episodes um i'm it's it feels like they've taken the title, The Haunting of Hill House, yep. and they've taken the character names, and they've taken the basic idea of a haunted house story, and there's a few you know, shots in it, there's a few plot points in it that are quite similar, but so much of it is just so vastly different from the, the book, the film, the 63 film. I'm almost like, why? why are you calling this haunting of hill house you know um i might you know ask me at the end of the the series and i might have a completely different opinion of it 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 felt very effective you know it's it's kind of very effective in that that modern horror way i jumped when i was meant to jump second episode there was an amazing scare with henry thomas's character where i was literally kind of you know 
pushed back in my sofa because I was so, so horrified by what I was seeing. But, you know, when I, when I pressed stop, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't do it for me as much as I was hoping it might. Let me say that. It's yeah. Vastly different. Um, it, it, as you say, there, there is a vibe about it that is similar, but mm-hmm. and, and that's being generous to, yeah. to say that. <laughs> uh, but I, I get why they've, they've got that as the title it's mm-hmm. gonna pull in new old everyone's exactly. gonna want in on day one uh, yeah and yeah and it 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 pans out really well but it's okay so all right far, good. good to know it's so far from the haunting from 63 yeah. that it's it's a moot point by the end of it because you're you're invested in this whole different thing completely different story yeah i mean to my mind it's like if people watch it love it and go back and read the book fantastic if people love it and go back and watch the 63 if all this does is make people aware that there were pre-existing versions of this story thank you mike flanagan because i do i wonder to what extent this film isn't seen as much as i feel it should be you know like (sighs) I, I don't, it doesn't have the kind of things that necessarily draw horror fans to a film, you know, so Robert, you're talking, we're talking about Robert Wise as director, you're not going to watch this film because you love Robert Wise, you know, like if you love George Romero, you're going to watch all of George Romero's horror films. Sure. If you love John Carpenter, you're going to watch all of John Carpenter's films, you know, Robert Wise isn't really a horror guy. So it's not like he has that name brand attraction for horror horror people same with the cast you know that you're not going to watch this because you're doing a christopher lee binge you're not going to watch this because you're doing a you know a peter cushing binge you know i do love the fact that richard johnson is in this and richard johnson is in zombie flesh eaters like that really that makes me very very happy but I, i wonder how many people miss this because it doesn't maybe have some of the kind of entrance points that other films have. So that was Eric Ellicock uh, talking to me all about The Haunting. That's a position number 13. Uh, So what the bloody hell could be number 12? What could be at that position? Well, of course, it's Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a movie being shown in this area that we would sincerely like to warn you about. The title, The Blood Feast. This is, without exception, the bloodiest, goriest, most sadistic motion picture ever produced. If you're at least bit squeamish, do not attempt to see this one. We have told you about many horror movies that you probably got a kick out of, but this one is different. If you are at all impressionable, don't see it. If you have an impressionable teenager, under no circumstances, let them see it. Absolutely no children will be admitted. There'll be nurses on duty, not as an advertising gimmick, but because they will be needed. We are sincere in warning you about this movie. Its title again is The Blood Feast, and it is honestly the most gruesome motion picture ever produced. See it if you must, 
but we wanted you to know what to expect. Holy shit! That's right. That was the trailer for Blood Feast. And to discuss this mad, mad concoction of a movie, please welcome back onto the show the guitarist with Death Valley Girls, Mr. Larry Shamel. He recently was a special guest on an entire episode dedicated to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and now he returns for another Grindhouse classic. In the sleepy suburbs of Miami, seemingly normal Egyptian immigrant Fowled Ramses runs a successful catering business. He also murders young women and plans to use their body parts to revive their goddess of Ishtar. The insane Ramses hypnotizes a socialite in order to land a job catering for a party for her debutante daughter, Suzette, and turns the event into an evening of gruesome deaths, bloody dismemberment, and ritual sacrifice. Oh yeah. So here, this is our thoughts on Blood Feast right now. welcome back all right yeah welcome back thank thanks for having me again yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, the last time you were on uh, as we're talking it was actually only a few weeks ago it went live but it's also already the third most popular episode that i've done so thank you so wow. much wow that's amazing that's so cool yes yes some friends of mine are like oh, i listened to the podcast on a road trip i'm like oh it's so rad so cool <laughs> wow awesome yeah that was fun that was like Nothing better than you know talking about your favorite movie to another horror freak. <laughs> well, we're going from like one that's renowned for like to be maybe the top tier movie uh, of horror to Blood Feast, uh, yes. which isn't seen as such, but by a few it is. Yeah. Uh, so, what's your history with Blood Feast? Where does this begin? Oh man. Okay. Yeah. This is another one that was like, yeah, one of those myths of, of, of a film that I would like read about. And, um, yeah, going back again to the, those early eighties days of like Fangoria magazine and the fanzines. And I do remember there was this book splatter movies that came out 80 or 81. It's going to use a, thought I had it behind me I wanted to use a prop even though people can't see it I wanted to show you to to illustrate um uh that's oh, not back here but uh yeah so this movie splatter movies came out and um yeah had this chapter on H.G. Lewis and also at the same time uh John Waters shock value book came out and he right. had a chapter on it was called the two masters and it was a the chapter was he had a chapter on H.G. Lewis and a chapter on Russ Meyer and and also Fangoria magazine came out and there was like they were talking about H.G. Lewis as the the godfather of gore and all this so I kind of like was like what is this all about what's who's this H.G. Lewis guy and why do people keep you know talking to him and or talking about him and bringing up like Blood Feast 2000 Maniacs and all these movies being like the first gore movies and I was like this really piqued my interest like because it was such a especially back then so so obscure and like you know it was just like how how do you see these movies and just like the the photos and the magazines were not 
you know, it's like very uh, bad quality and it makes it look even more intriguing. Like yeah. oh, these really gnarly, like what's up with this, with this guy's movies. And, um, and that was like right when the video boom was like just happening. And it was one of those things where we had a little local video shop called uh, Video West. He started, yeah, those early, because those H.G. Lewis movies kind of came out right around that early-ish kind of era of when videotapes were coming out. And But it's kind of a, a blur because there was at some point we had this community college in my town I grew up in, and this guy put on a horror movie festival, and all it was was like he just somehow was able to rent 16 millimeter versions of uh, like some H.G. Lewis movies and like, you know, some older, like maybe some Hammer stuff and some Universal stuff. But in the mix, he had somehow got 2000 Maniacs and Blood Feast and something else. So I went to this this community college and it was just this room with folding chairs and this old rickety uh, film projector. And the guy, I even remember like meeting him, he had like a Clash t-shirt on and his name was Jim Todd and he was just like, you know, punk rocker. And um, there was just a few of us kids like uh, in this room watching these <laughs> movies and the first, so it was weird because it was like a, it, seeing it like on a crappy, like, you know, movie projector, uh, Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs and it was like blew my mind and I was like, oh my I God. Bet amazing and i talked to the guy jim after the you know and he said oh he rented them through some like mail order thing like there was I think that there was a shop down here in la called hollywood book and poster and the the owners uh the owner eric caden had rights to the hg lewis movies at the time and and rented out prints or something like something where it was like he was able to to get these movies to show and um so when i first saw them yeah it was on this crappy film projector on film so it was like really like full you know like experience of like wow this is pretty much like seeing it in a in a movie theater or a drive-in or something and it did pop up like right around that time at the video stores like blood feast 2000 maniacs calling me blood red like they started popping up so i would like go rent them and re-rent them and um they were so, because the gore is pretty like at the time it was I did know it was pretty like low budget and schlocky and the effects were so ridiculous it was still like shocking to know that those movies came out and like the early you know mid 60s and um they were really extreme for the time and so I'm I yeah I became a G. Lewis fan and you know loved all the rest of the movies and you know, started collecting movie posters and the videos and stuff. But it definitely was like Blood Feast, regardless if you hate it or love it, had such an impact. When you think about the other movies coming out at the time and the extreme gore and everything in it, and it's so just like concise. It's like the movie's like an hour and 10 minutes. You know, it's just like this, this little thing that had such a huge impact. And even though it took... Yeah, kind of. It was kind of like the, um, you know, the Velvet Underground of like splatter <laughs> movies or something, where it was like came out, nobody really noticed, but it had this huge impact. And it slowly over the years, like the influence is, is like you can't deny it. So now rewatching it, it was the funny thing uh, rewatching it is like 
so now everything is so like high definition and so yeah. like you know, super like oh my god remastered like whatever 10k <laughs> however it is you know so watching it again and high def and stuff it's like it, it's funny because it's so like you really really see like the detail of of kind of how bad the effects were and how like you know and how red the paint you know the blood is and everything yeah. and like really it really magnifies like the i mean the movie it's a it's almost like a, a i don't know like an art film because it's so bizarre and the acting is so weird yes and and i think the thing that is kind of it, it is funny to see this high def version because kind of like taking i don't know like taking an old like uh punk 45 and like oh it's been remastered and like you know sweetened it sweetened it up and stuff and it's like it kind of loses a bit of the magic because watching when i remembered watching those movies in the back in the 80s it was like the graininess and crappy quality kind of lent itself to um the vibe and and even it even made like the gore effects and something uh, and everything like more effective because it was like you couldn't quite make it out so the the idea of having these type of movies like uh you know all like remastered and and or or uh in high def is kind of yeah it's kind of unnecessary because it's like i don't think that they were sort of meant to yeah they were meant to be seen in like a a drive-in you know like on a gloomy night where it's like kind of like what's going on on the screen so it, it's a yeah so re-watching it was a was really like like wow this is a different experience but it it didn't make me appreciate it anymore it just kind of magnified the like just how insane the movie is and how ridiculous and like like wow what a bizarre singular movie it's you know yeah, I totally agreed. Like, I'm so jealous that you got to see it that, that initial way. I only ever saw it on those Arrow Blu-rays where they've been sort of remastered and touched up. And I love that you can see how the films were made because it's so clear. And like, yeah. you can see when like the the scene starts because sometimes they take a moment to actually begin the scene, and that's totally. Yeah. And like, right. and I I love that stuff, but i've never had that initial experience of seeing it how they should have been seen like grimy yeah. and grossy and up on the big screen so i've missed out on that like i watched um like how to make a doll recently yeah. on that set and i was just thinking mm -hmm. this is not the way to be watching this film right like, right right should, yeah. i should be with a bunch of friends like mm -hmm. you know outside with even a projector in the backyard or something like that but yeah sitting on your own analytically watching it is not the way to do these films i don't think yeah, it was a it was a different experience. Yeah, like rewatching it and just being like, wow, this is really um yeah, just just like you could see every detail and um everything about like the acting and it, it cuz it does like really come off now as so campy and so and almost like it is like a John Waters film or something cuz it's like when they made the movie and they like the acting and everything like, yep, yeah, that's great, you know, like move on to the next scene. <laughs> the main character is so like like at times it's almost like yeah you're watching like a comedy skit because it's so over the top and it's so like wow but it's like that's what it is like everything about that movie even though it's like definitely you know campy and cheesy for what it's doing and, and the amount of blood and everything it's like an extreme movie and there was like the thing about it was like yeah definitely 
lost its impact with all the other films and things that have happened over the past 50 years but um still like you have to kind of hand it to that to hd lewis for like just going there like just being that extreme and being like this through all the buckets of blood and limbs being ripped off and tongues being ripped out it's like there was no precedent for that it was like whoa they're just you know <laughs> yeah. why do you think um Bloodface is the one that sort of sticks out amongst his films why do you think people always point to this one i think because it's just such a like it is quite a statement because it's just so like i mean the story is pretty straightforward with like the cannibalism and the egyptian feast and and um the weird you know ramsey's character and uh yeah and also the, just the fact that the movie like the the plot and like the detectives are it's just like paper thin there's like basically the movie is like just to kind of get to each you know extreme gore scene which kind of is like what a lot of horror movies are it's like just like this very like not much narrative going on not much storyline it's just like basically like here's the story and then we could get to each you know like extreme you know murder or whatever in the in the film and i think that's why it kind of really stood out as his like definitive statement or something because it's just and each gore scene and stuff is pretty extreme and different it kind of set the stage for a lot of the way a lot of horror movies were done and re-watching like because I yeah I definitely it's not personally my favorite H.G. Lewis movie personally my favorite one is She Devils on Wheels because I'm Thank a you. super biker movie fan so the idea of a biker movie and a like a gore movie together like it's like that's perfect that's like the best and the soundtrack I, everything about that movie I think is like it's so so great and I like just for the hell of it just because it's like you know delinquents and 2000 maniacs I think is extreme wizard I mean I could keep now I'm like oh wizard of gore yeah, I love gore, wizard gore. of gore too man I love it yeah and Blood Feast, yeah, because Blood Feast, I'm like, I appreciate it, but it's definitely not. Um, yeah, there's there's a few other uh, films of his that are, I I enjoy more, just because I think after he made that, then it was like, okay, this is the the statement, and then he was able to kind of like go from there using that formula. But I think it was improved upon as far as like the ideas he was using, the acting, and the the effects. Everything kind of like got more crazier and weirder i love blood feast but yeah as far as his movies it's definitely it's not um my top one but you can again you cannot deny the influence of it and like what it it's uh yeah again the velvet underground or like metallica kill em all it's like hated it or love it it was a statement of like this is you know this is, is the future <laughs> this is what's happening this is what's going to be we're mapping out the rest of metal or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I agree like every single bit of this film seems to be wanting to sabotage it like from the for the music going ding dong oh, ding yeah yeah dong. yeah and then you've got the acting like Suzette and her mum are particularly awful awful actors mm -hmm. and yet i i love it and then the sound it's like i don't know even with the the way arrows tried to fix things up some of it yeah, it's yeah. like what's going on they've invented mumblecore have they i don't know what's going oh, on yeah. Here. oh yeah but yeah. at the same time 
next watch. I'm loving it for those bits. They're the bits that I can't can't wait to see Suzette on that kitchen table counter. I can't wait. You know. Yeah, and, yeah. So I I don't understand my love for for Herschel Gordon Lewis. I just do not know why, but I come back to them a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that scene, that's one of my favorite scenes, I think, is when she's on the kitchen table and she keeps like, oh, hold on, oh, wait a minute. And like, Ramsey's is like, what are you, like, I need to do this thing. And she's just, <laughs> it's so funny because she keeps like, oh, hold on, I need to do this. Uh, you know, keeps like interrupting his intents, like, I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's some scenes that are like funny. And I think they knew, you know, like, I think they, there was a sense of uh, humor and playfulness in what H.G. Lewis was doing. Like, I, cause I think he knew like, this is so absurd. And so like out there that, yeah, like the acting and stuff, like it's like whatever, but the characters were so, yeah, definitely um, bizarre. And I think that, like, I think if they tried to play it, I don't know, like too serious or something. Like, I think, I think like the, yeah, the production value and the acting was like, kind of secondary which makes it more kind of magical because it's like the end result was just so bizarre and it was like wow this is like like they couldn't you know if they had really good actors or really like it would lack the 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 weird appeal because if you watch something like psycho where it's like so well done so like well crafted and the acting is so good and it's in a an amazing film and then you kind of think like just a few years later here's blood feast and it's kind of like the the opposite of that it's extreme color bad acting like the gore is like not it's it's in your face it's not like you know like hitchcock's thing everything was just so like kind of like uh you know it was it was a sort of or what you don't see and what your imagination is uh like like in Cha texas chainsaw where it's like it wasn't a really gory film it was more like stuff yeah. you you didn't see it kind of made your imagination go like oh my god like you thought you saw more than you did of course and blood feast like no we're just gonna show <laughs> you everything and more it's <laughs> like yeah pretty like i can't imagine what it was like back then in the 60s you're gonna go see a horror movie at the drive-in or whatever and you see that and it's like whoa like that must have been pretty uh shocking yes. Because everyone's used to like Frankenstein and the Wolfman, and at that point, yeah, the most extreme stuff was like Psycho, and so that was a pretty, yeah, that was a pretty big, yeah, leap into what was to come. <laughs> oh, I just want to mention the very end because I showed my wife for the first time the ending because I, was, I just love it so much. Where he gets busted and he makes a run for it, and it's the the funniest runaway scene. And then he runs through a junkyard straight into the back of a, a rubbish truck, and yeah. uh, <laughs> then gets gets himself crushed to end the yeah. film. And I just yeah. think it's comedy gold. Like I absolutely love it. And I've got to wonder, like you've just mentioned there, Lewis must have known that that's funny. Like there, yeah. there is a funny. There's a joy to that to end it in that way. So yeah, I agree. I think like you got to get with the the comedy beats to make this film work totally yeah yeah because it's so extreme and like yeah that that last scene is funny because it's so it is like a like everybody it is like a bumbling sort of you know like comedy skit or something or the, the garbage truck thing is 
it's so it is yeah it's so extreme that it's it's funny and and the the effect at the end with the blood and the is like yeah it it is it is like a, a comedy bit where it's like this is so over the top and a fitting death for the, for the killer but it is like and just how it like that happens and then that's that's the end of the movie there's i don't even know if there's credits it's sort of like the end and like that that was it like that's you're just left with like what the hell <laughs> like that's some of the horror movies that just like the end do oh okay yeah that's <laughs> it that? yeah that's like you're not gonna have to sit through like five minutes of credits it's like that's it but yeah there's a lot of scenes in blood feast where it is like yeah it's almost like it's it's so extreme and ridiculous that it it gets to the point where it, it's it's kind of like um monty python like right. when i yeah, see right. um you know monty python and the holy grail and when I saw that, and I think even in the movie or in the book Splatter movies, when I was growing up, like that is mentioned as a, you know, even though it's a comedy as it's, there's an extreme gore in that movie that is like, but it's so it's, it's handled so hilariously. Like when the, I haven't seen it so long, but when the, uh, all oh, the knights that say knee. Yeah. 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 Cutting off the arms and legs and stuff. And it's, blood squirting everywhere and um and it's so fun it's so great because it's so extreme and so gory but it's handled with such a like just it's hilarious because they just take this different angle with it and in a way it's almost like blood feast has that element because it's so extreme that it kind of like becomes like this is so outrageous that it's funny and the fact that the effects are so they're so bad and so like you know like what is that like what kind of like is that chicken or like what kind of you know like it's so outrageous that it becomes like it's funny because yeah it's really not like shocking it's like oh this is so like horrible and like realistic it's like uh um yeah i guess that's a part of the the appeal of the movie it's that everything about it is is kind of absurd Thanks to Larry there for returning to a year in horror. An absolute legend. Buy all the Death Valley Gal stuff that you can. It's all good. But there is one more also ran to go. And this one very narrowly missed out on a top 10 position. It is called Diary of a Madman. And I found this one on YouTube. And when I noticed that it featured the one and the only Vincent Price, well, I was confident that it wouldn't be a dud. And I was right. Of course I was. And even though it may not be the strongest of his roles, it's still thoroughly enjoyable. It's a spirit possession romp. That's what it is. Uh, this one is really well written, but it still feels really slight. It is more of like the Sunday afternoon comfort watch rather than a terrifying tension-filled slasher uh, for the ages. Let's say that. But I was super glad to know that whenever I want to watch it, you know what? It's just there. 1963 also runs complete. Holy smokes!
is Oliver Reed playing himself in this film? Because this one, whilst being a hammer horror, is not what you would think of when you imagine a hammer horror. It's more psychological than that. It isn't gothic. It isn't paranormal. This one finds hammer finding its place in a post-psycho world. I would also say that it is quite underseen and it shouldn't be. It plays on the trope of inheritance horror, which when I went back into the 1940s and 15s and 30s even, I saw exactly how prevalent it was even then. Check out both versions of The Cat and the Canary and why not throw in Chase a Crooked Shadow from 1958 in there as well. I love this stuff. Inheritance is a great reason for a film to include revenge, some tricksters, some convoluted plot twists along the way, absolute bastards, ghosts, you name it, it just tends to work. And this movie, it's called Paranoiac. And if you're yet to see it, please pop it on your lists. So what does the letterbox synopsis say about it? I'm going to tell you right now. It says Simon Ashby is a wealthy psychotic who is coddled by his aunt in their palatial mansion outside of London. One day, Ashby's long-lost brother mysteriously arrives at the house, but events prove that he's an imposter, sent by Keith Cossett, son of the attorney for the family estate, who has been dipping into the family trust fund. What a naughty young man. And today we must also remember Anthony Ashby, who, blinded by grief at the death of his parents, took his own life. What he did was sinful in the eyes of God. But God is merciful. He will have taken this little boy into his kingdom, there to join the mother and father that he loved and missed so much. What did you see? Tony? He's come to fetch me. The telephone is dead. And he left a note saying, I can't stand it any longer. Please forgive me. They didn't find a body, did they, Miss Ashby? Righto, okay, so MVP for this one. Uh, I was going to do an MVP on the director, actually, Freddie Francis, but as I dug deeper and deeper, I saw that there are 24 horror films to his name. Uh, so for me, that's the sort of amount of films where I want to put a whole episode into him. So I'm going to be doing that. Uh, there's 15 out of that 24 that I haven't seen yet. I've actually got myself pretty excited about it, and uh, I've put in a couple of orders already for a couple of the films. What can I say? I'm I'm a child about these things. I love it. So far, my favourite of his films is the Amicus Portmanteau film, Tales from the Crypt. But there is so much that I've yet to see. Dracula has risen from the grave being one of them. The Skull is another. Something called Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny and Girly. I mean, just that's just three of them. I'm genuinely excited about this. Uh, his last film, in fact, was called Dark Tower. And that was released uh, in 1987. Uh, but I think he's better known for his cinematography work. I'm looking into him just a little. I'll just give you a little. In fact, he won two Academy Awards for his cinematography. In 1960, it was Sons and Lovers. Never heard of that. And in 1980, it was Glory. 
Sadly, this man passed away in 2007 at the age of 89, and I can't wait to get stuck into his whole world. So, Freddie Francis, thank you for your service. This one is scored by Elizabeth Lutyens. Uh, I think that's how you would pronounce it. And it's an all right score. It's not as hammer as I was hoping for, sure. But the film isn't very hammer, as I explained already. Uh, Plus, every now and again, there's a gong. I hear a gong being lightly thumped. And let me tell you, that sounds a bit rubbish. I don't like it. But overall, this one, it's quite wispy. It's longing. It feels romantic rather than just having uh, both feet in terror or even one foot in terror. Uh, maybe let's say it's got his toenail in terror. Is that enough? Is that what I want? Don't think so. But you want to judge for yourself, right? So where can you find this film to watch? Well, in the USA, it is available as a basic price rental on a ton of streaming services, uh, which is where I found it, thanks to a VPN, but not so in the UK. Now, this is a horror by Hammer. Now, Hammer Horrors... You would have thought I would have got it in one of my many box sets, but I haven't. It's not included on any of them that I own. So yeah, a cursory look on Amazon has it on there, but it's for silly money unless you want to import it from Europe. Uh, And it's still quite expensive then. It's crazy stuff. Crazy. As for podcasts... In the Eyes of Terror podcast, they released over an hour's worth of chatter. Uh, That was back in September 2018. And then if you want to listen to a two-hour discussion on this one, and I suggest you do after you've seen it, because it's a really good one, uh, try Magazines and Monsters from December 2022. And that is Paranoiac. This one is really important for me. I think the movie as a whole is really good, but its important lays in that, for me, it was the very first anthology movie that really works like a modern day, uh, i.e. like Creepshow and onwards, anthology movie. So Boris Karloff, he's the crypt keeper in this, and he does a hammy yet wonderful job. And I think the three shorts vary in quality, but just like Creepshow, I wouldn't want to skip any of them. And I think if you read the reviews, people all have their own favourites, so there's no nailed-on winner here. This one is also important to me because it was my very first Mario Bava movie, and just like his films that preceded it in The the Girl That Knew Too Much, and then after it in The Whip and the Body, this thing just looks beautiful. It looks stunning, in fact. Uh, The colours pop, the compositions scream, just look at me. Uh, This is how you do it. It is glorious. And, oh yeah, a band also took this film as their moniker. Yeah. You know it. It's Black Sabbath. 
Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff. The personable Mark Damon. And tantalizing lovely ladies of this and other worlds. An adventure into the supernatural where a beautiful woman lusts for her lover's blood. Black Sabbath. Is he man, vampire, or Vordalak? I am hungry. Black Sabbath in color. So here is that letterboxed synopsis. Three short tales of supernatural horror. In the telephone, a woman is plagued by threatening phone calls. In the Wordalak, a family is preyed upon by vampiric monsters. And in the drop of water, a deceased medium wreaks havoc on the living. And I'm going to give you a short and very sweet MVP with this one. From the segment of The Telephone, I would like to give a shout out to Michelle Mercia. She delivers quite the performance as Rosie, especially when she breaks in that segment's final moments. I absolutely love that scene and I do think about it quite often on my day-to-day horror life because it's been used so often since then in so many other films. And from what I could find, she was only in one other horror film uh, and that was another Italian one. I haven't seen it yet, but it was directed by Antonio Margaretti, who also did Castle of Blood and The Amazing Cannibal Apocalypse. Both of them are, of course, very cool films. So I can't wait to watch this thing now. It is called Web of the Spider and she plays one of the leads and it is an Edgar Allan Poe tale based on one of his uh, writings called Night of Living Dead. Uh, I can't wait to get stuck in, to be honest. Uh, Michelle is still living with us in France at the age of 84. And I just want to say thank you for your service. just heard some of the score composed by Roberto Nicolosi and it does sound like a typical score of its day it's rich and it's full it's never too obsessed with its horror status but at the same time it's not afraid to get a little bit creepy in places but overall I just expected this thing would suit uh, sort of police procedural better much better than it would a horror film anyway in fact what i played you was probably the most horrific piece from the whole score it's fascinating i guess but it is a little bit disappointing at the same time which brings me to pose this question where can you find this film won't you listen well i do have the arrow blu-ray and if you have two well then you've already won all right now but if you don't and you live in the United States, well, then it is streaming for free on Tubi, Canopy, Pluto, 
Plex. And in the UK, you can also stream it for free if you have access to classics. As for podcasts, Scream Stream Podcast, they launched their episode on Black Sabbath in May of this year. And Test Pattern Podcast, well, they did a two and a half hour special on Black Sabbath in July of 2020. And there you have it, folks. That is my fourth favourite movie from 63. All right now! Black Sabbath. There is some terrible acting in this in the form of the bad guys, but... By the halfway point, you get into the film's rhythm and then you just forget how bad they are. You get sucked into all the tense staging, the drama of it all, the hopelessness, the cruelty. It's absolutely fantastic. Arch Hall Jr. plays the sadist in question here and he has the most wonderfully anguished scream that I've ever heard in a movie. It is simply incredible. Uh, It's at number three in my greatest horror films from 1963. That's where I have placed James Landis's The Sadist. I have been hurt by others and I will hurt them. I will make them suffer like I have suffered. The words of a sadist, one of the most disruptive elements in human society. To have complete mastery over another, to make him a helpless object, to humiliate him, to enslave, to inflict moral insanity on the innocent. That is his objective, his twisted pleasure. This is where I roll out the letterbox synopsis. Three people drive into Los Angeles for a Dodgers game and they have car trouble. They pull off into an old wrecking yard where they are held at bay by a bloodthirsty psycho and his crazed girlfriend. Now, usually here, I would pinpoint you to an actor or to a member of the crew, but With this one, one of the very reasons why I actually wanted to see it in the first place, well, I put it on my watch list after I read this review from Letterboxd. It was posted by Josh Lewis, and Josh is part of the Sleazoid podcast. And this is what he said. This is a really elegantly shot, real-time chamber thriller of its era, with a strong focus on the geography of this rusty junkyard that these characters are being held hostage in, as well as the psychological and literal eyeline perspective as they navigate this brutal, desperate situation with very limited resources. The constant switching between these moody suspense-building compositions and the wide matter-of-fact dumps of background and foreground information for logistical decision-making considerations and those sudden bursts of violent, sweaty hysteria, well, they're incredible. If this was all this movie was, it'd be a good one. But it also benefits from this uniquely nasty, savage tone that sustains a truly squirm-inducing vibe of pointless cruelty, almost deliberately preying on the naivety of its old-school 50s domestic archetypes, who just find themselves face-to-face with a more modern evil. 
It's almost banal in how manically destructive it is. And it feels overall like it's looking away from a more innocent time and towards the kind of places that nihilistic 70s exploitation movies would eventually touch down. There are some real gruesome shocks when this finds its groove in the second half that sort of feels like if Bonnie and Clyde wandered down the road far enough and arrived at The Hills Have Eyes or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is great, great stuff. That review there was enough to get me to put this on my list and watch it. As I said, I'm so glad I did. So, hey, credit where it's due. Josh Lewis from Sleezoid Pod. Appreciate it. The score by Paul Sortal is proper good as well, especially for 1963. Maybe it was because it was a financial restraint it sounds this way, uh, and it was made this way, but we have this minimal amount of strings and horns at play, and one hell of a rollicking intense horror fueled score for the most part, except there's these odd flourishes, I think it's saxophone here and there, they're a bit strange. But what I can tell you is there's a sweet upload of it on YouTube. It was put there, of course, by Fishman, who I haven't mentioned for a while. He's still at it. But thank goodness he is, because that is 11 minutes that he's pulled from the film, and it is so, so good. So where can you find this? Well, on YouTube is where I found it. And of course, it is free to watch there. And it was a surprise for me, uh, because seriously, this is such an underseen gem of a movie. I'm surprised it's not been put out in some lavish box set. Can't recommend it to you enough. Uh, In the UK, it's streaming for free also on Prime and Plex and Cult Picks. And in the States, it's all over the shop. But Tubi is amongst them. And Tubi's my new favourite, so I'm going to stick with that. As for podcasts, well, as soon as I watch this, I listened to a podcast called The Hysteria Continues. Uh, And it was their episode that landed back in March 2012, which is the oldest podcast recommendation that I've made so far on A Year in Horror. It's two hours long as well. It is fantastic stuff. And that, my friends, that is The Sadist. It's a hammer horror, but not as you would think it. And it's not been terrifically reviewed either, both at the time or in more recent appraisals, but I have it really high. Letterbox scored it at 3 out of 5, and that is the best of the bunch. IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes are both in agreement. In fact, Rotten Tomatoes uh, only has an audience score that is 54%. But here's what I reckon. The dance scene in this thing is staggering and it's at the 15 minute mark. It's simple and poorly choreographed and at points it's a little laughable and yet it completely sets up the dynamic of the story that we're about to engage with, with the lust, with the history of the characters on the screen, the love triangles presented well and quite importantly the pacing of the whole film ahead. I think that scene is key. It's all in there. There are pacing issues, I do understand that, but I can definitely attribute them to like a slow burn stance 
uh, and spaces where I can sort of fill in the details of the characters in my mind. Maniac allows me to do it. Plus, this one is crazily underseen in the Hammer canon, and I reckon it's probably down to not having like a major player attached like Cushing or Christopher Lee or Vincent Price, whatever. So, yeah, look, I've put this one really high because I personally really enjoyed it. I hope you will too, but I'm not going to dip into spoilers because so many of you just aren't aware of it yet. I know that because Letterboxd tells me so, so give it a go if you're in that boat. This is the story of an afternoon when the sun burned down and scorched the earth. When a man was crazed with desire for an unsuspecting girl. And then the awful aftermath. An afternoon when a kindly man turned into a raving maniac. You must have heard of it. You must have read about it even in the American papers. They called it the Zeppelin killing. It's Beenar, George Beenar. He's my husband and his father. That man he killed, Janiello. It was so terrible that they found George insane. Starring Kerwin Matthews as the stranger who came to a maniac's home and came between two women. You think I've enjoyed watching you two? You're married to my father. What you have been doing is a crime against him and against God. Nadia Gray, wife of the maniac, a monster in hiding. I do not know who is the bigger fool, Farrell. Eve or you? But I'm supposed to be mad. So I must behave like a man. Also starring Donald Houston, Lillian Bruce as the daughter, who came face to face with a maniac's torment and twisted revenge. Okay, here's the letterbox synopsis of it. When a stranger enters a quiet country town and is seduced by a sensuous married woman, he unwittingly finds himself at the centre of a storm of sexual guilt and murder. So, the lead and the sort of protagonist is called Paul Farrell. And in Maniac, he's played by the delightful young chap named Kerwin Matthews. He was 37 when he filmed this and he hits the tone exactly right. I never once like him, and for most of the time, this movie lets you know that that's all right. Just keep following his story. I think he's a great choice in the lead of this for sure, which is why I just want to mention a couple of his other projects. So we begin uh, with his horror projects, that is. With his horror projects, all right. It's a horror podcast. I get it. We're going to begin with a couple that I think were made for TV. Uh, Ghostbreakers from 1967. Uh, the, the synopsis of that is a professor and his beautiful assistant investigate a murder which occurs in a supposedly haunted house. It's 60 minutes long. Yes, please. It's called Ghostbreakers. Then a really easily accessible one over on Tubi from 1969. It's called Dead of Night, A Darkness at Blazedon. Which, judging from the length, it might have been another made-for-TV movie, as I said. But in 1971, he starred in Octoman, which, judging from that front cover, is amazing. And judging from all the reviews, 
it's rubbish. Two years forward from that, in 1973, he appeared in a okay but nothing special film called The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. Uh, saying that, it was a bright spark in it as the lead, but most importantly, Nightmare in Blood is now on my list. That's a film from 1977. It's called Nightmare in Blood. I might have already said that. He plays a prince, and this is why I want to get it so bad. It's set in a horror movie film convention in 1977, no less. Nightmare in Blood. I've mentioned it again. There we go. I'm good like that. But this is what happened to him after all that. In 1977, that was uh, Nightmare in Blood. Again, I keep mentioning it. Uh, Matthews later retired. One year later, in fact, he moved to San Francisco where he ran a clothing and antique shop. Uh, Matthews died in his sleep in San Francisco on July the 5th, 2007. He was 81 years of age. He was survived by his partner of 46 years, Tom Nickel, uh, a British display manager at Harvey Nichols. That British luxury department store and they met together in 1961 that is a long innings together what a dude Cohen Matthews thank you for your service Okay, so where can you watch this film? Well, the indicator Blu-ray of this one is quite exceptional, but that's the only place that I could find it except for <clears throat> YouTube. Now, I don't know if it's an official upload. I don't think it is, but it's still there. So yeah, the whole thing is there. It looks pretty good as well. So if you don't want to spend out, why not just go for it there? It's free. Podcasts? Well, there is bugger all out there for this one none that i found uh, this is simply the only place where you can find anyone chatting about it by the looks of it and i'm giving it a real solid recommendation so enjoy it please it's maniac aka the maniac it's a hammer horror for goodness sake <sighs> In May, A Year in Horror did a special on my number one pick for 1963, which is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. The special guest was a singer from the German thrash metal band Tankard, whose name is Gare. And Tankard, although still going, have definitely dropped off the heavy metal radar in recent years. At one time in the late 80s, they were doing the same business as Creator and Sodom, but as I say, the drop-off has been wild. Not so, though, for the birds, I can tell you that much. This movie is as evergreen as that podcast episode is always busy. Month after month, more and more people listen to it. Now, this, I think, has to be because the birds is a near-perfect classic Alfred Hitchcock horror that I can watch again and again and again, and I never tire of the thing. Tankard, I listen to every now and again. So few films have had that power. And this one, like The Wizard of Oz before it and Star Wars and The Shining after it, they're just part of my very, very being. And who doesn't love that? 
Plus, the scene with Tippy Hedren lighting, then smoking a cigarette whilst taking a rest outside, and then the birds are flocking behind her. That is as iconic to me as is, say, the Mona Lisa. I just get super, super, super excited about cinema and horror whenever I think of this film. I absolutely love it. It's the birds. How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about our good friends, the birds. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. Birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. Yes, they attack the children, attack them. What's the matter with all the birds? Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. Those gulls attack. Impossible. They came in right down the chimney. Why are they doing this? It's the end of the world. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. That would hardly be possible. Mitch, don't! The five continents of the world contain more than a hundred billion birds. All at once, the birds were everywhere. Why don't you all go home? Lock your doors and windows. Did you get the windows in the attic? When do you think they'll come? What happens when you run out of wood? I don't know. You don't know? When will you know? When we're all dead! So here's that letterboxed synopsis for the birds. Chic socialite Melanie Daniels enjoys a passing flirtation with an eligible attorney in a San Francisco pet shop and on impulse follows him to his hometown bearing a gift of lovebirds. But on her arrival, the bird population runs amok. Suddenly, the townsfolk face a massive avian onslaught with feathered friends with the feathered friends inexplicably attacking people all over Bodega Bay. So, since that standalone episode that I did on the birds, I've watched several other horrors starring Tippi Hedren, and the majority are not very good. But saying that, I've not seen In the Cold of the Night from 1990, and that comes highly recommended by critics, so it is now on my list. But I want to point you to a movie of hers called Raw, if you haven't seen it. R-O-A-R. Raw. It is the most reckless, the most irresponsibly made film that I've ever witnessed. And because of that, I don't think I've ever been more on edge watching any movie ever. We're talking real lions. We're talking Tippi Hedren and her daughter, her real daughter that is, a very young Melanie Griffiths. Uh, They're trying to convince the world that they are one with the animals. And you know what? There are a couple of moments where, yeah, they're almost inside the line, so absolutely is one, I guess. For some reason, I've watched it twice now, and it doesn't get any easier, and I'm sure if someone wants to choose it, well, I'm going to watch it again. Forget cinematography, forget linear storytelling, in fact, any real plot at all of any sort. It's just tension, pure stress, it's absolutely mental. Herman, he from Psycho and Taxi Driver and Citizen Kane, yeah, him, well, he scored this thing 
but he didn't really score this thing. He's credited as the consultant, the musical consultant on the birds. Did he do a good job? Is it rubbish? Well, of course it's not rubbish, but it's not really a score either, as we would know a score. It sounds like electronically manipulated bird sounds, and it's really eerie when it's inserted about the place. I actually haven't researched this at all because I've not gone into any of the extras on my box set yet, but what a bizarre choice, and also one that just adds to the off-kilter film of this masterpiece. Doesn't take anything away from it. It just adds another layer of... What? So yeah, this one is pretty short, it's pretty sweet, but as I say, we did do a big episode of it with Tankard uh, way back when, so if you do want to get more information on it, just uh, just listen to that. But yeah, in the meantime, where you can find this one, it is available on several box set, but you can't actually find it streaming for free anywhere in the UK, but in the USA, if you subscribe to Peacock Premium, then yeah, boy, oh boy, oh boy, you are in luck, otherwise nothing as for podcasts presenting hitchcock they covered the birds in september 2019 and then what went wrong podcast they do a right stitch up job on hitchcock back in november 2022 that was and of course as i say one last time tankard paul we're talking the birds that's my number one it's the birds Right, let's choose the year that we're going to be dealing with next month. I've actually got a waste paper basket this month. I'm just going to rustle it in front of you. Okay, and I'm going to pick out the years. I'm, I'm quite excited. Uh, I don't really care what we get now. I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in for the win. Here we go. Just going to get one out. Open it up. I think. There we go. 2014. That's a pretty easy one. One of my favourite ever films came out in 2014, although some people say, no, it's 2013, but you're wrong because it did the festival circuit in 2013, actually came out for us to watch in 2014. It's Under the Skin. That was that one. Uh, 2014 was also The Babadook. I think it was The Babadook. Uh, Yeah, I'm good at this. You're not going to get me out with a, a year that recent. No way. Uh, that's that. Chuck that away. Okay, if you want to listen to any of the Year in Horror jingles, head over to ayearinhorror.bandcamp.com. They're all there. Feel free, as I mentioned in episode one of this year, to contact the podcast at ayearinhorror at gmail.com. Uh, that's where I'm going to be. Normally, I'll always get back to you there. But you can also follow me at Weller on Letterboxd and Instagram as well. Or you can hit me up on what was Twitter at NotWellerPod. Also on Letterboxd, I've listed all the years that we've tackled so far and attached those films to their proper positions. If you want to have a look at them, they're all there. Don't forget the Patreon, though. It's patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. The first tier is a £3 tier, which is just going to allow you to support the show. Thank you very much. I'll give you a little heads up as to what I did with some of that money this month around. I had a crazy toothache, an impacted tooth. It was so, so painful. I'm not a member of a dentist, so I called some up and the closest one was almost in London. If you know where I live, that's a long way away. So what could I do? Well, I had to go to an emergency dentist and it was private. 
I wouldn't have been able to do that and I wouldn't have been able to record this episode today. So yeah, thank you so much. That's the three pound tier. With the four pound tier, you're going to get all that joy of helping out the podcast, but you're also going to get access to a ton of extra content. It's loads up there. Four episodes a month at patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. And I want to give thank yous before I go to my wife, Claire Waller. She does all those Photoshop posters for every episode. She does a couple of jingles, the Sci-Fi Corner jingle, the Spooky jingle, uh, One Trick Pony designed the logo, Max Newton and Lucy Foster. What is their relationship update? Well, Max is currently with a sort of like hippie, psychedelic loving sort of crazy, cool, witchy type woman. She's very, very loud. And Lucy is currently with some other guy and they go on lots of holidays together, but she's really got into pinball recently. Um, They're still not back together. I've got a feeling they're never going to get back together. But why am I telling you this? Well, because they did the theme tune to A Year in Horror. I want to thank all the guests that came on. I want to thank you lot out there. Before things get too silly, before things get too scandalous. Yeah, again, thank you so much for listening to the end. Next month is 2014. Peace!